Mountain Pass, a podcast about lifelong learning, curiosity, and our wonderful brain. Topics we love at Alp Audio. But this isn't a podcast about Alp the product. Rather, it's conversations driven by our curiosity. Today I'm interviewing Tatiana Rodriguez. I wanted to interview Tatiana because I've heard her talk about her teaching philosophy on a few podcasts already. We are building a course together for ALP about public speaking, and I wanted to dive into the difference between teaching a skill versus teaching knowledge. How do you structure your teaching differently? How do you measure success? And what other factors do you need to consider? Enjoy. Well, Tatiana, welcome to the Mountain Pass. And before we dive into exploring the differences between teaching a skill and teaching knowledge, which is really the conversation that I wanted to have, just for context, um, why don't you tell everyone who's listening where you teach, what you teach, why you love teaching, because I know that you do enjoy immensely who you teach and what you teach. Yes, right. Yosh, it truly is one of my absolute favorite things in the world is being in college classrooms and corporate classrooms, helping others learn and enjoying the process. I currently teach public speaking at Rutgers University in New Jersey, and I do corporate training on leadership and communication topics virtually and in person. It's been a long time coming, and I'm so glad to be back in the classroom with students. It's probably a great feeling. Fantastic feeling. Uh, what's actually, what's that like after a year plus? It was quite exhilarating. There's a lot of anticipation and excitement in my mind be- because I very much enjoy in-person teaching. I will say that I also greatly enjoyed virtual teaching. So to me, a lot of the excitement was about combining the, I don't want to call it old because it's not like it's old thinking, but but combining previous thinking with all of the new creativity that came about and ways of doing things. Because I do believe that the future does involve hybrid style learning for education, especially in higher education. And in my own classroom, just yesterday, I had this experience where two students didn't feel well but still wanted to participate in class, but didn't want to drive or necessarily be around other people in case they really were sick with something that could be contagious. So they asked if we could do online and I thought, well, let's give this a try. And the classroom is equipped with camera and audio. So I taught my first legit hybrid style class yesterday where everybody's live, but some people are physically there and some people are virtually there. And is that easier or harder? Because my assumption has always been that hybrid is much harder than either or because you have to keep the people who are on Zoom engaged with the people who are physically there. Yes, you are right. It is not easy at all. And if I was asked, what would I prefer after reading what so many elementary school teachers had posted over the past 15 months about hybrid teaching? I remember thinking, okay, this is definitely complex. This involves a lot. Your attention has to be all over the place. 
because you want people to feel included in the room and online and you're managing multiple platforms, multiple media streams. And I wasn't, I was I wouldn't say that I would want to do that all the time, but I do think it's the way the future is going to be. And as the equipment and the technology gets better, then the process will become easier. For me, experiencing this yesterday, I really, thinking about developing skills and having knowledge, I thought, okay, I understand conceptually what it takes to do a hybrid class. I get it in my mind cognitively. But yesterday was the first time that I was putting those skills to the test and it was bumpy. There were, there were many practical logistical things that were bumpy. So for example, simple things like, I, this was a last minute thing where the students contacted me right before class. So it wasn't a pre-planned thing. Although I had the bulb in my mind that I wanted to be able to do this in the future. And then boom, happened yesterday. So a logistical thing like the microphone placement and wearing a microphone and a mic pack, because if I don't, students online won't be able to hear me. But I was wearing a dress with nothing to clip the microphone pack to. So little simple things that you only learn when it comes time to actually put the skill in place. It's like, well, I have to now hold the microphone the entire time in my hand and I use my hands. It's public speaking. We talk about nonverbal communication. <laughs> so even all of those things. And then one of the microphone packs, battery died halfway through class. So fortunately, a student spoke up and said, I don't, we can't hear you. And then I you know, sw switch the microphone pack in between. So even the logistical things like that only come from the doing process rather than the knowing process. So now that it's happened once, I know how to be better prepared for the next time. Wow, there, just as we were getting the, am I sharing my screen, is my microphone on? Just when we were getting that down, well, now there's so many more small details to keep in mind. Uh, Absolutely. But, so this this ties into what I wanted to talk about today, which is the difference between teaching a skill versus teaching knowledge. And especially in the context of a hybrid classroom where teaching digitally asynchronously when you're not there, I feel lends itself much more towards teaching knowledge, or at least that's our experience at ALP specifically for audio at this stage. But how do you think that translates to also the hybrid classroom, but also maybe before we step into that, maybe we take a step back and just get your thoughts on the differences between those two worlds in general. Like what are the differences between teaching a skill and teaching knowledge? Are they one and the same? Or is this, you know, the classic Bloom's taxonomy, one builds upon the other? I don't see them so much as different as much as part of a process, because you really don't develop skills without having knowledge first. So, so I think that it's, it, it's a continuum. And Bloom's Taxonomy is a wonderful way to organize your content. I mean, I, I refer to it continuously even in planning my own coursework. And I think, I think Bloom's Taxonomy is a very important model to use. And especially the more comfortable you are, the more knowledgeable and skilled you are in an area, the more you wanna go back to beginning concepts because we can very easily become unconsciously competent and forget what it's like to be a 
beginning learner. So the, the those tools like Bloom's Taxonomy are great. There's there's another one that I think is really helpful in skill development, and it's got a couple of names. It's been named a few different things. Like originally, the concept was called the four levels of teaching. Then it somehow transformed into the four stages of learning a new skill. And I love things in fours because they're so easy to remember. So th this one in particular, the, you can imagine it like a pyramid as well, like Bloom's taxonomy, I think is also sometimes represented as a pyramid or even Maslow's hierarchy. So you can imagine it as a pyramid. The very first level on the bottom is this unconscious, unskilled area. So this is where we don't know what we don't know, right? We're unaware. So people may, there may be a little bit of denial or just unawareness or sometimes even just ignorance, but we are unconsciously unskilled. This is the, the beginning level. Then level two becomes we are consciously unskilled. So here we actually know what we don't know. The awareness has now started to grow. And this is where you realize I need to learn more. And you start to make mistakes and you start to develop the skill and practice. Then in level three, you become consciously skilled. Understanding starts to come into place. Uh, understanding starts to come into place because you've practiced. But in, in the doing part, in practicing and rehearsing, you're still struggling a bit. It's, it doesn't come easily, right? There's a bit of a struggle and difficulty. It takes a lot on your brain. There's a heavy cognitive load as this is happening. And I think that that can happen in level two as well. So level two and three can overlap a bit with practice and rehearsal and the difficulty coming up. And then level four is when you are unconsciously skilled. Now the skill has become quite easy for you. Not as much of a cognitive load happens in order to do it. And it's more like thinking of it as second nature. And you're at this level too, when you can easily teach it to other people. So I, I enjoy thinking about this skill acquisition process in these four levels. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. And I know I forgot what one of those levels are. So let me just see. Level one, I don't know what I don't know. Mm -hmm. Level two, I'm blanking on. Level three is where I'm starting to struggle with the practice, but I'm actually applying it. Right. And yes. level four is where I can teach someone else. Yes. And I, this is the part where I wish we had a live audience so we could call on somebody in the audience and say, help <laughs> Yosh out guys, what is level two? <laughs> so I'm sure that somebody listening is saying that's the consciously unskilled part where you actually know okay. what you don't know. You're aware that you don't know versus level one where you're being totally unaware. <laughs> Got it. Okay. They, they, both of those merged for me into the same one, but I guess it makes sense that they're split apart. So at ALP, actually the thesis behind a lot of the courses, or at least the entry level courses that we have is really, you don't know what you don't know get exposed to things, and then you'll be able to decide what you want to dive into more in depth. So I very much relate to that breakdown. Me too. And I think it's just a, an easy, simple way to understand how we progress as we acquire knowledge 
and skills in anything that we want to learn. So how does the practice make perfect mantra change when you're trying to teach the principles of public speaking versus applying them in practice? Because, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, I think it's Malcolm Gladwell who has like the 10,000 hour rule or Yes, he does. Yep. So 10,000 in order to be master level or have mastery 10,000 hours. Right. Whereas a lot of aspects of memorization or at least memory recall are much, 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 much lower. So space repetition, flashcards or memory prompts, often the statistics I've seen out there that are just mind boggling, which is for 20 minutes of cumulative review time over your entire life, you will remember something forever because, you know, memorizing a fact takes a very short amount of time. And then if you're reviewing it once every, you know, few days, few weeks, few months, it takes you 10 seconds to review. Um, And so 20 minutes over a lifetime turns out to be very, very time efficient. So how does that play out maybe with the students that you teach in terms of the reviewing and the practicing that it takes people to internalize the knowledge part and then actually apply it, especially when it comes to public speaking, where when you get on stage, your brain shuts down, especially that's me speaking from personal experience. Yes. (laughs) When you have stage fright and you can't all of a sudden think like, oh yeah, I remember the three parts of an introduction are one, two, three. Well, let me start with the first statement that you brought up, which is what do I think about practice makes perfect? I am a bigger fan of the term practice makes progress because I think that perfect is unattainable. And even the wisest person in the world who's so skilled and so masterful in an area will admit that there's no such thing as perfect. So that's, that's a language thing for me because as a person where words are important to me, the words that I tell myself in my own mind, the words that I share in class, I stay away from anything to do with the word perfect. So to me, practice is essential, but practice makes progress not perfect. Even if it's 10,000 hours, I'm sure that it's still not going to be perfect. So that's just a little bit of a language shift that I have. In terms of timelines, Our class in a regular semester, a 15-week semester, our classes are three hours, and there are some breaks, but on the average, we're spending 40 hours together in the class, which is only one full-time work week for most people. So that's, in my mind, that is not a ton of time. Now, of course, students spend time doing assignments, doing the challenges, rehearsing, and everybody's going to be putting in different levels of time into their own individual assignments. But just to to have an idea of some numbers, 40 hours of class time, plus rehearsal time and thinking time and processing time and reflection time, we're not talking about anywhere near 10,000 hours. And I'm not saying that students come out at the end of the semester, complete masters in public speaking, but tremendous, tremendous growth has been made overall. And I I see it happen right before my eyes. And that's just one of the absolutely beautiful things about being the educator is watching the transformation happen. And I literally have had students say to me, 
I did this thing this past semester where I asked my students to create a 30 to 60 second video, very short message to future students. What do they need to know about this class? And I asked them to be honest. What are some of the things perhaps that they found difficult or didn't enjoy that they, they know future students need to know to be successful? And several students said, I didn't know that I needed public speaking skills. There's just there were revelations to them throughout the process, which is which is beautiful to me because then they're experiencing that shift from that bottom level and those four stages of learning a new skill and expressing that consciously unskilled part happening where they're becoming aware. So so often we just don't know yet because we're new, because we're beginner learners. So seeing that process occur right before my very eyes is, is a very cool thing. I love that. And so we talked about the practice makes perfect part, a little bit about the transformation that happens in the classroom. And then I forgot the other part of what you asked me, Yosh. I think you actually cut, you touched on it, but now I have another question that popped in. <laughs> okay. Well, we'll move to that one. No problem. I know. Cause the, I mean, the, it was, it was, related to the memory prompts and spaced repetition over time for knowledge and how that connects to a skill, which is also the question that was popping into my mind while you were talking, because you said over a semester, students will learn 40 hours in class, which is only one work week. And yes, they have, I think, two or three times that amount of required work to make it an academic class. But and this is this is the story that jumped into my mind while you were talking was I've had a fear of heights for ever since I think I was like 14. And during my military service, we we parachuted. So I had to jump out of an airplane and we spent two weeks training um, to jump out of high things um, and it gets progressively higher. And after two weeks, there I was jumping out of an airplane 400 meters, uh, which is 1200 feet, kind of above the ground. And it's not that I'd overcome my fear of heights, but I'd, I'd learned to deal with it very well and confront it and control it. And after I got out of the military, I think a year or two afterwards, I was hiking and I found myself at a waterfall where people were kind of jumping off the ledge and it was a 30 foot drop. And the same fear came up as if I had never jumped out of a plane. And I really felt that that skill, that memory, muscle memory, emotional memory, whatever it is, had decayed over time. Really? Yeah. That's not where I thought the story was going to go. I thought you were going to get, I thought you were going to get to that mountain and you'd be like training other people who were afraid on how to do it because you had been doing it. But that's so interesting. Yeah, I, that's that's really how I felt. I, and ever since then, I mean, for a while, I try to kind of maintain that fear. Um, but it's it's not there anymore. I mean, that that regular aspect to it, which I've also felt with public speaking, by the way, where when I speak in public fairly consistently, you know, in a short time frame, I get over my stage fright. But if I'm away from that, you know, if that if I'm not using that muscle for a few weeks, for a few months, then it comes back almost 
just like in the beginning. Now, cognitively, I know how to deal with it. I know that I can jump off a cliff. I know that I can speak in public. By the way, they both feel just as terrifying for me. Um, <laughs> but the kind of the muscle memory doesn't stay the same. Or maybe it it's stronger, but it's just not nearly as strong as when I spent those two intense weeks practicing. So I was wondering if that's something that you've encountered or heard from your students or just how you think about, you know, that skill decay over time. Well, it's very interesting thing to consider. And maybe this is one of those areas where I'm in the unconsciously skilled part because public speaking is something that I love to do. And I've, I very often will share with my students that even when I was a little girl, I loved public speaking. I enjoyed it. Now th that doesn't mean that I don't feel nervous or scared because I 100% do. My stomach goes crazy. I start to feel all kinds of things in my head and my hands and my heart starts racing and my throat can get dry, but I still love it even though I'm afraid. And a story that I share with my students is that I'm actually afraid of skydiving. And I have family members, I have a brother who's also in the military, who's pretty much not afraid to do any of those kinds of things and has done it millions of times. And he invited us as a family to join him for skydiving for his birthday one year. And I was so happy that I had another commitment and could graciously bow out because I didn't want to admit how scared out of my mind I was <laughs> to jump out of a perfectly good plane, you know, like. I, I, I have no fear of getting on a plane. It's the jumping off of one part that scares me. And I was blown away by the fact that my mom said yes. And, and, and my mom is a, a courageous, amazing woman, but I never in a million years would have thought that she was going to jump out of a plane ever. So the fact that my mom did it now makes me think, well, I'm going to have to do it at some point because my mom can do it. I can do it too. But I, I, sh I share with my <laughs> students and even sh I share the video of my mom and my brother jumping out of a plane. And also Will Smith has an amazing video about what, what skydiving taught him about fear. And one of his main points is that the point of maximum danger is the point of minimum fear. It's that jump part. Once you jump, that's the maximum danger part, but it's also where you let go of the fear. And one of his second point was, what did you need all of that fear the night before laying in your bed, worrying about it? Like, how did that serve you? So I start every semester. It's not built into the curriculum. It's the way that I think works best for me and my classes. We talk about fear right away because it's such a huge barrier for so many people. And I think that the power, people are gripped by it Fear has the power if we stay silent about it. But if we follow Yoda's advice of named, must your fear be before banish it, you can, then everybody can let it out. And at the end of the day, people may use a different words, but everybody's afraid of the exact same thing. As human beings, every single one of us is afraid of being judged negatively because we're not afraid of being judged positively, right? If people may judge us, but if they judge us favorably, we're okay with that. It's when they judge us, the, the fear of being judged negatively that holds us back. The fear of making a mistake, of forgetting our words, of thinking we're coming across as unintelligent, or people are going to think that we're dumb, or we have a strong insecurity of something about the way that we look, 
all eyes on us is super scary. You know, so many different things that I hear from my students. But if we can establish that very first time we all meet as strangers, that we're pretty much all in the same boat, every single one of us is afraid of being judged, yet we're still here. And then the next thing I ask them to consider is after they've named their fear, okay, well, what's something bigger than your fear? And I'll, and I'll share for me, it's my desire to have an impact and to invest in the next generation, to pass on this concept that your voice matters. And I also hope that everybody listening can, can walk away from that if they struggle a bit with the power of their own voice, that they can realize that their voice matters. And only you can share your experiences with the world. Your voice is completely unique. Just like we have a unique thumbprint, a unique heartbeat, unique set of eyes, we have a unique voice. No one ever in the world has ever had your voice before and never will again. Completely unique vocal pattern that every person has. So I think that once we establish, we're all afraid, but we can do it afraid. There's that, there's that expression, fake it till you make it. And, and I understand what that means. And I don't think that it's a, a, a bad concept. I just think, I think I'm just not a fan of the word fake. So I, I avoid that language. So to me, instead of fake it till you make it, I say, do it afraid. Just kind of like, be like Nike, blend a little Nike and just do it afraid. <laughs> so even if you're afraid, go for it. Like, I think we get so scared about what it means to be scared that we we, we need to learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and doing things, even if we're afraid. And then once we start to do that, like you were sharing with your heights story and your military training, once you start to do it, it becomes less fearful, less fearful. And the way that they trained you was like, I will train my students in the class too. We, we go from low stakes type of practice sessions to higher stakes. We don't start with really, really high stakes. Well, on their first day in class, I'm not going to have them do a speech that's worth a ton of points. But I do, on the second day of class, have them do a low stakes speech of introduction, introducing another student in the class where they get full points if they do it. It's not about evaluating the way that they do it, it's rewarding them for doing it. And then, then the stakes get a little bit higher, the more you learn, the more you practice. So I think it is important to do low stakes in education first and then move to higher stakes rather than starting the other way around. Especially if we're talking about things that people are fearful of, like public speaking. Right. But what you said is also so relevant for so many other fields because I mean, just this, this podcast, for example, which is, you know, we launched it before we were comfortable with it before we knew exactly where we wanted to take it and what we wanted to talk about, but it's just, you know, it's just do it, just get it out the door, start doing something, leave your comfort zone. And you're right. We're not faking it, but we're definitely doing it while it's half-baked and a work in progress. The same can be said for Alp, by the way, you know, startups are classically like that. Teaching sometimes I feel like is very much like that. Um, and that's just a general life. I don't know if it's life skill or 
knowledge that should be dropped on many people, which is that sometimes you just have to get out the door and do it. And that's more impactful than, you know, 99% of, of the things that, sh- that you'll do. And absolutely. May- yeah. And maybe, maybe that ties into kind of the, my original wondering, which was about how, how those skills stick with people throughout life. And maybe it's really teaching them, you know, you won't be able to teach someone who's scared of public speaking to feel comfortable speaking in public two years after the course, but you'll be able to give them that toolkit that they'll be able to then apply themselves, right? Just like I know that, yeah, if if I want to get over a fear, I just have to get out and do it and start with low stakes and work my way up to higher stakes or some, you know, breathing techniques or other kind of relaxing mindfulness practices that, that I learned back then when I was about to jump out of a plane. And those are skills that I learned that I can then apply three, five, 10 years down the line, even though I have to relearn that specific fear muscle. Does that make sense? It does make really good sense. And it reminds me a bit of that, that concept. I think his, I think the person's name is Sydney fine who talks about different kinds of skills and, and some of them are, I might get the exact terms wrong, but knowledge based skills where we, we know the thing in our head. And then there's the transferable skills, which is the abilities we have and how we use them in different situations. And then the self-management skills that are about how, the the how that we then, and and there, because it's self-management skill, then there's also some self-regulation that goes in there. So I think that, that, for example, for a student taking my class, they've now, they've now got in their mind a memory bank of learning, but also successes, right? That they've been successful in some ways in the class and many are very successful. So moving forward in other settings, And not every student is going to then go and do public speaking regularly, but we tie together that public speaking isn't just standing on a stage. So a lot of us feel like the term shouldn't necessarily be public speaking as much as just called speaking, but showing them how the skills that they learn in the class, how they apply to all these different areas of life First one that comes to mind is an interview, but even something like asking somebody out on a date involves a bit of persuasion and, and risk-taking. So applying how public speaking concepts matter in so many different areas of life, then it makes those skills transferable. And then they're in a new situation. And even if it's meeting a new group of people for the first time and speaking up, or even answering in another class and knowing not to start with, um, so I was going to say, right, to take away that weaker language that dilutes their message, that dilutes their confidence, and start with, I think, and then they share their content. So that 
how what we learn in the classroom matters in many areas of your life, both in and out of your academic life, makes that learning stick more. The other thing that makes the learning stick more is struggling a bit in the class. And in, in, a, in the book, Make It Stick, the term is desirable difficulties. At least that's where I first learned about it, where you want the students to struggle, right? There needs to be some wrestling with the content, some difficulty in order for it to truly become a, still that, a skill that sticks with you rather than just something you know in passing and don't ever apply. So that's one of the, one of the things that I think we might miss in education sometimes because we want to give the students the information and the answers and then have a discussion about it, right? So I feel a better way is to actually let them figure it out and then talk about what we think as educators are the right ways to go about it. So I think starting with in early on in the semester, and I did this recently when we were talking about audience engagement, I didn't give them an entire list of ways to engage the audience. I first had them give them a shot at engaging an audience first. So they had an experience to recall. And then we talked about ways. And then they get a chance to revise their plans for the next speech about how to engage their audience. And I always say, I'm going to give you these ideas, but you may come up with even more. And then I'm going to ask you to share those back with me. The second you said desirable difficulties, I went to game design, which is one of my pet passions where when you design a game, you know, any computer game or any game in general, it can't be too easy. It can't be too hard. If it's too easy, no one, you, you, no player is really engaged. And if it's too hard, then players get frustrated. And so you have to have just like you said, a desirable difficulty that activates players' curiosity, their desire to advance, to solve puzzles, to, to improve. Um, and that's a key, a key factor in any good game. And in teaching, I think, I think the Harvard case system, you know, where you plunge students right into a case without giving them the answers that's one of its main success points, that it really brings the desirable difficulty into class. And the professor, instead of being the sage on the stage, just says, this is the situation. What do you think we should do? What would you do? And then the students have to figure that out. And, you know, at ALP, we actually, we've been trying to play around with that in terms of the desirable difficulties also with how we portray information? Like, do we plunge students into the heart of the lesson, the case from the beginning? The other thing that came to mind was just, you know, it's a shame that a lot of these skills are kind of the way you think you think about teaching doesn't come to life in, I'd say at least three quarters of, of my bachelor's, which was in uh, business. So when you learn about finance, when you learn about managing a business, you're not really applying anything. You're not struggling with that, either with difficulty or with the skill. Like no one's throwing you in the middle of the water and saying, here's, you know, $500, go open a lemonade stand. Everyone will meet here next week and we'll see what you've, what you've learned. It's just learning the theories without applying it in practice. And 
there's so much that could be improved with kind of taking the public speaking framework that you use because you're teaching a skill and then putting that into practice in, I don't know if to call the more academic or more theoretical fields, but you know, at least my business degree could have really, really used that. And that is an experience that I hear from even students today. So I graduated college many, many years ago, and I would also agree with that concept, but I think there is, and I am very happy to be a part of it, a bit of a revolution, not, not even a bit of a revolution, an educational revolution going on, those of us who strongly believe in active learning strategies, like what we're talking about. And for me, also experiential learning. So the more senses I can involve, like if it were up to me, I would take my students to different locations for different classes. And I'm, and I'm working on it. I'm hoping it's going to happen. I would love to have one of our classes be in a yoga studio with yoga mats where we can talk about regulating our nervous system and also ways to prepare the body for speech delivery in terms of physical exercise, whether that is a strong cardio workout or if it's more in line with a relaxing yoga breathing technique session. There's one, one thing that you mentioned that I do wanna share, which was how how do these things impact students' lives on a personal level? I think you asked me that. Yeah. And I wanted to share something that just happened yesterday. I had a student on LinkedIn who had been in my public speaking class shared that she was going to be working with a, a baseball sports team. And I commented with a you know the green celebration icon and just said, <laughs> wow, wow, wow. I remember you talking about wanting this in class and I'm so excited that it's become a reality for you. Congratulations. And you know, and she liked my comment. And you know, I, I very much work hard to develop strong relationships with my students. And I know it's not easy because there's only one of me and many, 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 many students. But I do make it a point to establish that I genuinely care about their success, especially in terms of believing in the power and the strength of their voice and improving their communication skills. I mean, that is why I'm there. I am there to invest in them. And then I was so touched because I got an email message from her. Now, she didn't, she didn't say this publicly on LinkedIn, but she did think to send me a personal email and said, I just wanted to write you and let you know how much your comment on LinkedIn meant to me. Thank you for giving me the confidence and skills, not only when it comes to public speaking, but in my abilities to reach my own success and potential. Your class played a big role in how I speak and carry myself today. I hope you know how much of a positive impact you've had on my life. I learned a lot while taking public speaking and it's really helped me in my personal and professional life. Hope you're doing well. Hope to see you around campus. And wow. And I was beyond touch. I mean, I, I was happy with the little, you know, she liked my comment yeah. on LinkedIn. And then this reminds me that what we do, the relationships we're able to develop in the classroom are so powerful. And I wouldn't have necessarily known how she felt had I not shared a little comment about her most recent celebration. But it just, it, it really touches my heart as an educator and as a human being because it is so valuable to help somebody feel more confident. Like 
yes, I taught them. I taught her some things. I teach my students some things, but also I'm just showing them what's already inside of them that can be developed. And those who choose to accept the invitation. And I remember her struggling a bit in class and being really engaged. And, and I even remember her coming to me to say, you know, I don't, I don't understand this point of feedback. Can we talk about it? And then we go over where some of those, where she was missing some of the points that I wanted her to make, where some of the skills weren't there. She took those and then she worked on them for next time. So I could see her going through that skill development process we talked about. And does it matter to me that she remembers every single term? No, but this message that she sent me, this is what really matters that she's able to feel confident in her voice and able to express herself genuinely and powerfully in ways that help her obtain the things that she wants in life. And that to me is, is what I do. And it makes it so worthwhile. Wow. Wow. That's such a powerful moment as a teacher or a mentor or just anyone who impacts one life like that. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I'm so blessed that this is one of many stories that end up coming back to me too, from students who say, I took what I learned and I applied it when I did a training in my department, or it helped me get that interview. So many different areas. And I love being able to elevate and share those student voices and the struggles too. Just, we need to keep it real. You know, this stuff is not easy. People fear public speaking because it's hard because it means we need to take a risk. We're putting ourselves out there and, and our brains go into protection mode. And that's where that resistance comes from. And we talk about a mindset shift where I also believe that fear, it's not something that we need to actually fight. I don't think we can fight the fear. I think we need to accept it. And like I said before, do it afraid. Get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Accept the fact that we're going to have a physiological response to that environment, to those triggers. But we can still deliver a quality, valuable message anyway, even if we feel afraid. Like fear does, I don't, I, courage is not the absence of fear. I forget if that's an exact quote, but courage is not the absence of fear. It's moving forward even when you're afraid. That is to me what courage really is. 100%. So takeaway number one is that I hope, I know that I'm going to be doing this after, after we, we wrap up, but reaching out to someone, anyone, a teacher, a friend, a boss, a parent um, who's who's had that impact and just sending that note because to send the note only takes a few minutes of time, um, but it makes such a big impact when you receive it. So that's number one. And I really hope everyone, everyone who's listening will do that. Me too. Cause number- appreciation being able to expressing appreciation can can make such a difference. It can make someone's day. It can make some, I mean, look at how much time we've spent just talking about this moment of appreciation, right? It's, it's meaningful. And in my, I, uh, when I taught a leadership course, I had my students do an appreciation exercise. I would bring in note cards that said, thank you. And I said, I know there's somebody that you've been meaning to thank and you haven't, and today's your chance to do it. All you need to do is mail it. 
All you have, your responsibility is to send it. I'm here to make sure that you write one today. And I think that that's a valuable lesson, even in public speaking. You know, what would it mean to make a phone call right now and express your appreciation to somebody and use your voice to express that appreciation? So I agree. I, I do hope that that is a big takeaway that everybody listening can put into practice right away. <laughs> right away. Um, and number two is where, where can people get in touch with you in case they want to continue this conversation? Oh, I would love to connect with people. I'm huge on connection. I have a... We, we connected like this over, I think I read something you posted or you read something I posted and then we just connected on a Facebook thread and that's how we've been connected. Exactly. So. And you know what it was? You and I both belong to Bobby, uh, you and I both belong to Barbie Honeycutt's Lecture Breakers Facebook group. 100% true. And you, a, you, a you, you asked a question and I commented. <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's how we ended up connecting and we've you know done done a number of projects together now so it's exciting yeah, yeah. but so you love connecting and, and people should definitely reach out because you I do you love connecting on LinkedIn I'm hello Tatiana Rodriguez so hello in my name on YouTube I have a YouTube channel where I interview my college students on public speaking, leadership, creativity, and self-care, the four things that I will talk about all day, every day with people, no matter where I go. And it is students elevating their voices, sharing how what we learn in the classroom matters outside the classroom. So I want to recommend that channel. And that channel is called Tatiana Teaches. So if you go to www.youtube.com forward slash C, forward slash Tatiana teaches. That is how you can find me on YouTube and LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, Tatiana, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you have a lot going on and many busy days and taking an hour to chat is not taken for granted. So thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. And even though I won't get to connect and meet in person, the people who might be listening. I just want to send a message of appreciation to everybody who is listening for giving us your time, for paying attention to the messages that we're sharing today. And it is my sincere hope that it's been a valuable investment of your time and may it help you in whatever communication and speaking goals and skills that you have. <laughs>